you're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Zach Bechtold and Matt Franks. If you'd like to learn more about the Bearded Theologians, you can go online at beardedtheologians.com, where we have past podcasts, blogs, and a couple items for sale. So check us out, beardedtheologians.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy this week's show. You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast, hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. And today we have a very special guest uh, with us. We have the Reverend Dr. Eric Smith, who is the Associate Professor of Early Christianity and Contemporary Christian Practices here at the Isla School of Theology in Denver. Um, I had the, the honor and pleasure of taking several uh, classes with Eric, and he has written a new book uh, that's quite quite interesting and, and different perspective from a lot of, a lot of folks called Paul the Progressive. And so, Eric, thanks for being on with us. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Yeah, so I am from North Carolina, a very, very small town in North Carolina um, called Walnut Cove. And I've been in uh, Colorado about 13 years now. I came to Colorado to do a PhD at Isla from the University of Denver and ended up sticking around um, after graduation. And uh, I'm now on the faculty here and I'm really Loving it, loving Colorado, and um, and still get back to North Carolina some. Um, and actually, that's a lot of where the, the book comes out of, um, is out of my experiences growing up in um, sort of normal Southern Christian culture, but also the evangelical subculture, and then coming to a place where I'm now a sort of working Bible scholar and coming at it a different way and putting those things in conversation with each other. Yeah. So, so I remember from, from class, uh, one of your big, not, not your big claim, but what you were trying to do when we would get in with Paul of, look, progressives have this idea of Paul and want to throw him out the door, but Paul has something to teach us, right? That, yeah. that Paul is actually okay, you know, trying to reclaim that, uh, the good out of Paul. And, and I feel like this is what the, the book digs into uh, in, you know, as somebody who came to Isla, I have a love-hate relationship with Paul. Growing up in a similar context of, of Texas, uh, in, in that culture of it's this, this, and this, and uh, you know that, that wrestling with Paul and, and his theology and how that plays into our theology is really, really interesting when you, when you begin to stop throwing it out because we don't like it, but digging into the why and, and uh, context and all of that stuff and how it's fruitful today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book really comes out of that experience of being a, a place like Iliff, and nearly every student I have in my New Testament classes, the intro class, will say, you know, I really don't like Paul, I, I actually hate this guy, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. The same thing happens in the congregations, both congregations I've worked in and congregations I've visited, um, where people will just say, yeah, Paul, you, you know, I have a use for that guy. And it's interesting to put that in conversation with like modern, the most sort of cutting edge scholarship on Paul, because most of the things that people don't like about Paul turn out to be not things that Paul did, but rather they're either things done in Paul's name, or they are things that are owed more to like the theology that's accumulated around Paul over the years than they are owed to Paul himself. Mm-hmm. So the claim of the book, you can kind of see it in the subtitle of it, is that Paul, if you're a progressive Christian, or, or really any kind of Christian, you might have considered Paul to be your enemy, um, or at least somebody to be ignored or pushed to the side, but I think actually, not, it, not only is he not your enemy, he's actually your ally in a lot of ways if you want to go around doing justice. And um, he's someone who can be a resource for, for us if we're um, trying to do good in the world. 
say, uh, say more about the allyship of Paul and how, um, how we kind of begin to reclaim, reclaim that. Yeah, so, you know, often the things that people don't like Paul because of are things like misogyny, because there's a bunch of stuff about women stay silent, if you have a question, go ask your husband. Um, you know, women, women's roles in church leadership should be limited. Or there are things about homosexuality, where um, some of the verses that are often brought up as, um, as biblical proof texts about homosexuality are in Paul's writings. Um, in an earlier period, he was very controversial for his views on slavery. We don't really debate slavery much anymore, but 150 years ago, of course, our society was debating slavery, and Paul was a key part of that debate. So he's really been squarely on the wrong side of most of those debates, in my opinion, over the years. Um, but I think the allyship piece comes when you realize that, as I said earlier, you know, a lot of the things we attribute to him are not really him. But more than that, if you look at something like misogyny, not only did Paul not write the things that people think he wrote about um, women's roles, but actually if you pay attention to his actions, in his own ministry life, he's an ally. He's someone lifting up women and pointing to their roles in leadership. The best example of this, I think, is Romans chapter 16, which is not a chapter most people ever really read because it's one of those chapters full of just names. So you kind of skim over that and skip to the end. But in Romans 16, Paul mentions a number of, of women, and, and I tend to think this is especially useful partly because he's not performing really there anything in particular. He's just saying hello to a bunch of people. But he mentions a number of women, and he mentions them, as some scholars have pointed out, with verbs of uh, action and daring and risk. Mm -hmm. So he's mentioning women in, in their activities as people who are really um, not only part of this movement, but, but active in it and pushing it forward. The best example in Romans 16, I think, to kind of show Paul's allyship and how it has been twisted and misconstrued by the Christian tradition over the years is the case of this person named Junia. Junia, uh, Junia is mentioned in Romans 16 early on, I forget which verse, and he calls her an apostle, or he, he says she's prominent among the apostles. And translators over the years, Bible translators would come to that name and say, Junia is prom prominent among the apostles. That, that just can't be right because Junia is a woman's name and women, of course, can't be apostles. And so Bible translators changed the name. They added an S to the name and made Junius out of it. And uh, Junius is a masculine form, although there are no men named Junius in the ancient world that have ever been discovered. And Junia is actually a very common name. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's one of those, um, what Bart Ehrman called orthodox corruption of scripture. It's one of those places where, in the interest of trying to make it more right, um, people over the, over the centuries have damaged scripture and made it less correct. So by recovering Junia, I think we, we can point to the fact that Paul very unproblematically just lists her as an apostle and doesn't seem to have any qualms with it whatsoever. The qualms belong really to later tradition and to the church that over the years has limited and pushed aside women. So he's an ally in that regard that he was right before the church was wrong, I think. Right. <laughs> it kind of sounds like, uh, well, I went to uh, Phillips Theological Seminary. And uh, Brandon Scott really kind of opened my eyes up to, to some of the things you've said in the book and, and, and being more aware of how, like, the, that structure, like, you know, the, you know, you brought up that one and, and how it just becomes misinterpreted. And, and 
Uh, you know, a lot of our churches, you know, don't know that or understand that. And uh, I think that that's something that as you're, as you know, you're a professor. And so as you're training these people to help them unpack that, because sometimes they're coming to your class with this like deep embedded, like Bible, you know, Sunday school knowledge. And then you're like unpacking this, you know, that totally deconstructs everything they do. Um, how, how can you, you know, like, what are some ways that you kind of recommending uh, reconciling those two to help them bridge that gap of being able to see how Paul is an ally uh, to us uh, even today? To me, the, the toughest layer to pull apart is the theological layer. Um, it's easy to kind of say, okay, yes, Paul uh, might be more positive toward women than we thought. But the theological layer is the stickiest one, I think. And that's the one that when you talk about an embedded theology, for example, that's really what sticks with you. So there's a good chance, if you're listening to this, that even, whether you're a Christian or not, or a, a Protestant Christian or not, probably your, your sense of what Paul was writing about is that Paul had this system of salvation that depended on a very, what we call, low anthropology, that human beings are just bad, and that we can't be good, no matter how hard we try, they're just terrible, to use John Calvin's language, they're totally depraved. And therefore, we're incapable of saving ourselves. And that's why we need Jesus, because Jesus comes along and, as someone who's not totally depraved, um, dies on our behalf and sheds blood on our behalf. And that's the payment that God demands for our sinful nature. That's sort of the default understanding. That's the operating system of Christianity, whether you mean for it to be or not. That's just kind of what we think it's about. And most of that comes from Paul. But actually, it doesn't come from Paul. Most of it comes from Martin Luther. And you know Martin Luther uh, did a lot of really wonderful things, but but also left a lot of really complicated and and messy legacies, I think. And one of the the things about Luther that's important is that he had this strong sense that he was never good enough. He felt completely inadequate before God. And there's this great story about him going to confession one time and just confessing for like hours upon hours upon hours and never finishing and finally the, the confessor kicked him out and said please come back when you have something to really confess but he's just like manufacturing sins here right. these are not important but he had that sense that he was never good enough and he he read paul as the same kind of um, person he read paul to, to to be someone feeling the same way so that he then interprets paul and in that way and it becomes really the thing that all of us carry around about paul so getting rid of that layer and understanding that it is a theological layer and it's not, it doesn't really belong to Paul in the way everyone thinks it does. It doesn't really belong to Christianity in the way everyone thinks it does. That I think is like the first step in, in reclaiming something else from Paul and from the New Testament, from Christianity generally. Yeah, and that's one of the things I appreciate about, um, gosh, reading, reading through Paul. Once you get past that idea, the intros, right? Paul humble bragging about himself, just look how great I am, look how much I'm suffering. And then you get, uh, you know, past the things that you've kind of picked out of misogyny and, and homophobia and xenophobia, and you actually get into the, the theological layers of who who Paul is and what he's writing and who he's writing to and why. Uh, there's actually, you know, there's some depth there <laughs> if you can get past <laughs> the rest. He's insufferable. <laughs> yeah, he's the worst, but he's so brilliant. You know? Right, right. So he, there's these pieces of Paul's writing that are just beautiful and so moving, and it's clear that he was deeply passionate mm -hmm. and deeply felt all the things he was writing about. But he's also um, just 
he had to be the greatest at everything, as Christopher Stendhal says. He was um, he was a lot. Mm-hmm. And my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite. One of my favorite passages in, in Paul's writing comes from Second Corinthians, which is one of both one of those beautiful passages and one of those insufferable passages, where he's just listing like all the different ways he mm-hmm. suffered, mm-hmm. and it's all in the service of saying, "Look, man, I I've like gone through a lot here. That gives me credibility." And, and I tend to believe him in those moments. Like, I think that's authentic. But it's also, um, it, it makes you roll your eyes at the guy. Right. Because he's um, so transparently, like, impressed with himself. <laughs> right. I love him for it. Right. Right. Well, I identify a little too much with him sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I understand that. <laughs> for me, you know, uh, I'll, I'll write a sermon and I'll have a list, uh, just a litany of things, you know, going through and it's like... <laughs> you know, I'm Paul in these moments, right? Uh, but we got to get through it. You know, we need the list. Uh, but it's also something people are used to, to reading, and they're like, oh, okay. You know, here comes one of those one of those pastor lists, right? One of those Paul Um But I, but I think that's, I think that, you know, to that point of, well, we identify with this. That yeah, there there are times that Paul's brilliant, and there's times that he's insufferable, and and for us as clergy and as professors and just as people. We have those moments. If we can get through the insufferable moments, the bad sermons, the bad classes, the bad days, and get to those brilliant pieces where we see uh, where God is at work, and we see all of these things, like oh, okay, you know, in and to not to to not hold scripture to that standard, right, and to hold our, you know, we we miss some of that, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and especially with Paul because he's so hard and so insufferable, uh, we don't do it. We, we don't do him any justice uh, sometimes. <laughs> well, and if you think about how Paul made his way into our Bibles, I think that that tells us a lot about how we should approach him. Mm-hmm. Because how many of us, you know, if our emails were hacked and published and, and later on became scripture, how many of how would we come across? <laughs> Maybe not that great, right? right. Um, and that's essentially what happens to Paul. He's writing letters to people. He's not writing with you and me in mind. He's right. writing letters to Corinth. Mm-hmm. And now we're just... Like we've intercepted his mail and made it into the Bible, mm-hmm. and um, that you know he might well have done it differently mm-hmm. if he knew that people like us would be here a couple thousand years later, talking about it as sacred scripture. I think he would have been very um, perturbed by that and um, weirded out by it. Yeah, and he might well have put things differently <laughs> if he'd known that he had a much broader audience than right. fifteen or twenty people in Corinth. Right. Well, and and that's what I find interesting in conversations with with folks. Uh, you know, especially what's going on in Methodist Church and just, uh, you know, in our culture and country with sexuality and well, how do you reconcile this with, with scripture? Well, context, right? You know, we, we start with context and who's writing it, who they wrote it to, and, and I'll, you know, when people bring up Paul and those things, it's like, well, you have to understand that Paul's likely answering another letter that we don't have. He's answering a situation that we don't have the context of. We have his side. We don't have the other side. And so we have to look at all of the historical uh, evidence and, and just what's going on at the time and why is he addressing this and that he was not writing to us and was not writing that this is going to hang around forever. <laughs> he, he's just, I'm going to send this letter and then it's done, right? Uh, to, to a certain extent. And yet, you know, you bring that up to, to, to folks and look at you and go, context. Mm-hmm. Why are we looking at content? Wait, wait, you know, <laughs> they wrote it to us. No, <laughs> he didn't. You know, and that's why he can say mutually exclusive and conflicting things mm-hmm. sometimes because he's writing to people in particular situations and not writing as if it were going to be true for all times and all people. Mm-hmm. Right? He's right. 
addressing a situation or an occasion. Right, right. And I think that that's what becomes difficult to reconcile for people is because they see it as it is written to us. Mm-hmm. And and if, you know, if, if he's not writing to us, then why is this, you know, why is this a thing? And, you know, because, uh, you know, there are plenty of other things that we could have probably included into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, sometimes I think just even helping congregations unpack, like, hey, understand that, like, this is what the church was dealing with. And, like, yeah, it's similar to some of the things we're doing with today, but it is not. Like, we can't say it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that helpful. Um, and, and that's kind of, like, uh, for me, uh, I have really have fallen in love with Paul. So when this when Zach said, hey, we're going we're gonna to look at this book, and so I was like, great. And so I started, you know, I was reading through it, and I was like, man, this is, like, this is stuff that I got at Severi, and I've been glad to, you know, and, and loved reading, uh, you know, so, some of the thoughts of like, man, this just feels good. Like, this is a book that everybody needs leads, like, that's going into a car, that's going to be in a ministry setting that they really should do, because some of the problems that we have is reconciling Paul with, with where we're at today in our world today. And that, um, I think your book does a pretty good job of shedding some light in some areas that uh, people tend to not be aware of. Um, and any other people that may have been, in, you know, a lifelong, you know, Bible reading Christian that they just never saw before, mm-hmm. and I think it sheds some light on some areas that uh, people uh, need to see, especially in regards to how we handle Scripture today. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, one of my favorite chapters in the book is actually not one that I planned to put in there, but kind of popped up because of the way the world is today, and that's the chapter I think it's called Paul the Xenophobe, mm-hmm. and that had ne- that had been on our radar. Like, it never occurred to me that people would think this about Paul. But then there was a moment where the um, Attorney General of the United States c- cited Romans 13 as evidence for the family separation at the border policy. And, you know, I think a lot of scholars of religion and Bible scholars' ears kind of perked up, and probably <laughs> clergy's ears perked up when that moment came. Because it's an interesting thing to cite Romans 13 in support of a, of a, of a government policy. And it turns out there's this long history of Romans 13 being cited by governments and not usually... Um, in ways that I think are great. Um, so there's you know, colonial citations of that. There was a debate about Romans 13 in the American Revolution about whether we owed blind loyalty to the, to the British just because they were the sort of mother country. And others were saying, no, of course we don't. And some were saying, well, Romans 13 says give authority to where authorities do. And the same kind of debate you know, has played out worldwide and is playing out in our own discourse today. Um, the White House press secretary came out after that comment and said, Yes, it's of course, I think she said, uh, biblical to obey the law or to enforce the law. So, you know, that I think is one of those intersections that not many of us saw coming between the world we live in and and the Bible. But it turns out to be pretty important uh, if, and I'm not sure this is a good idea to begin with, but if the Bible is going to be part of what goes into our national uh, immigration policy for whatever reason, then then we should at least get the Bible right and understand what Paul was up to when he wrote it. Mm You know, and that, that lends to the the conversation of, of getting it right. And, you know, you, you talked early on about, uh, well, we don't, we don't wrestle with Paul and slavery anymore, right? We've moved past that. And uh, I'm willing to bet that most people sitting in our pews or uh, wherever they sit don't, don't know that Paul has an argument pro-slavery, right? That, that it's just not on our radar anymore, but this other stuff is. Uh, and at what point does that begin to move off of our radar? And like, this is where... This is where we're at. Uh, and yet we have moments where people come back, well, Romans 13, it's like, again, really? Yeah. We're going to go with this again? <laughs> I guess we're doing this. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Yeah, the the slavery debate was was huge, and I, um, and not only Paul's writings, but lots of places in the Bible mm-hmm. were kind of trotted out by uh, slaveholders and pro-slavery advocates as evidence that their position was correct. Um, and I, I guess today a lot of people don't have an awareness that the Bible, through and through, really presumes slavery and presumes its rightness mm-hmm. and is that it presumes that it's divinely ordained and. Of course, that's something we would, uh, from our perspective today, say no to. So we do, you know, take context into account and and um, think with the Bible in our own time and place, as I think Paul would have us do. Um, and we, we don't live as if we're in the 19th century anymore, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's good that we continue thinking with the Bible in... Uh, new ways in every new moment. I'm my own. Um, I'm ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, but I have worked for a long time in a congregation of the United Church of Christ, the UCC, and there they have this great slogan: "God is still speaking." Mm-hmm. And um, I think that really encapsulates it for me. That yes, the Bible is, um, you know, it's this collection of of stories and texts and, and writings about God and our relationship with God, but it's not the only word of God. Uh, of course, Christians believe this, that, that Jesus, many Christians believe that Jesus was the Word of God. But there's also ways that revelation comes to us all the time, right? That uh, we learn new things. God speaks to us in new ways. Mm-hmm. And one of those ways is that we, I really hope no one listening to this thinks slavery is a good idea right. anymore. But 200 years ago, we all did. Not all of us, of course, oh, yeah. but many people did. So that, to me, should be a cautionary tale when we get into these debates. You know, you mentioned the, what the United Methodist Church is going through and other uh, communities have gone through before about human sexuality. That should be a cautionary tale to us that we don't always interpret the Bible the same way all the time and that the Bible is not self-interpreting, it's not self-evident what it means, and we always interpret it with our own experiences coming to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, into... into I, I like that that God God is still speaking and if, if we're sitting there thinking oh we're done right yeah. revelation is done we're done God's done talking it's like no we just have this on paper right that we have put on paper and done a lot of guesswork at and a lot of uh, uh, you know you talked early on about well we're going to change this because it just doesn't make sense right you know and make it make it work for what our understanding is uh, and the more and more we translate it into English and other languages we get so much of that right and uh, to, to, to say, well, this, just because we have this book, it's on paper, we're done. God's done talking. And it's like, no, 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 there's more, right? Uh, maybe the prophetic work, to work of preaching and teaching and, and conversation. And uh, how can we, you know, we're just not putting it in canon. You know, we're just not you know, put, adding it to the back end of it anymore. <laughs> but there's still more going on. Uh, but I think we, we get stuck sometimes and it's this, you know, and, and this is what it has to be. And it's like, no, what? there's got to be more. You know, uh, our experience comes into it, uh, you know, with, with good Methodist reason and, uh, mm-hmm. and tradition also also play parts. Uh, but we forget that sometimes when, when we want to prove we're right. <laughs> well, and I think we're also afraid of the spirit. Oh, sure. I, I think we're, we're I, I, I've been noticing, like, we're definitely afraid of the, how the spirit may be speaking to mm-hmm. us. And then we're kind of like, no, no, like, so I'd much rather take this text (laughs) than the Spirit of God actually speaking to me. Even though I feel like, and I can tell, like, I mean, I know of all things. I usually call those holy gas moments Mm -hmm. where I just feel like, all right, this is God working on me. And like, all right, so I've got to, like, 
you know, I've got to let go of something. And, that, and that's always hard for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it says it's change. And, and anytime change happens, there's a moment of growth. And in and, and that growth, there's pain. Like, and that's like people do their best to avoid pain. And so, like, we want to do our best to avoid the pain, but yet we also don't want to experience new things and just hold on to what we feel is true. And we're just, we find ourselves sometimes stuck in those moments. And I, and I mean, I say the same, it probably happened with Paul, was that people just like, this is, we like this, we're not going to unpack this, this is, this is comfortable, and we'll just carry it with us for, for, for a very long time. And, uh, and, you know, that's where we need people to unpack these things to help us grow and to push us to, to be, uh, better than what we could be and it be really listening to the spirit is is key mm-hmm. one of the first responses to this book uh, was a pastor who who pointed out that I didn't talk very much about the spirit in the book and I think that's a really perfect critique actually I should have talked a lot more about the spirit because Paul I think assumed this is just the way things worked is the spirit was always there prodding you and compelling you and, and um, talking to you and I think actually this is a good um, a good reminder for those of us in very kind of um, frozen chosen kind of <laughs> congregations that Paul assumed uh, charismatic gifts. He assumed mm-hmm. that the Spirit was present um, in worship, but he also frequently, both in his own letters and also uh, when he's described in Acts, he attributes things to the work of the Spirit in a way that should remind us that Paul himself expected continuing word from God. Mm-hmm and continuing action of God in the world. And I think we should expect the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, we, we fall into the, you know, Paul Paul's experience, first experience blinded, you know, goes, and I've, I've had this experience, right? And, and everybody around him is going, uh, sure. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think that's almost our response to the Spirit today of, we don't really understand this, and it's really, really hard to articulate. I've had this experience, I've heard this thing, I've done this thing, and everybody around us is going, uh, Okay, sure. Um, are you going to kill us? Uh, you know, is, is trouble brewing? Is this, what is this, right? Um, and, and yeah, for Paul to have that experience and then to continue to expect to have this experience throughout uh, and to continue to hear from God in, in various ways is uh, an important uh, maybe an important thing we miss on Paul, and, and maybe that could be your next book, <laughs> like, uh, Paul the Progressive, the and then Paul the Spirit. Uh, yeah. um, you know. Go ahead. Well, he gets really angry when people uh, actually deny this, right? In Galatians, um, someone has insinuated, and also in Second Corinthians, someone has insinuated that he's he's got sort of human purposes and that he's gone to, to listen to instructions from um, human superiors, and he just gets really pissed off about it and says, no, that's not what happened at all. Jesus appeared to me, and the Spirit has spoken to me, and God has called me, and that's the reason I'm doing these things. And he, he gets uh, at his most defensive when someone accuses him of, of having any motivation other than doing what God has asked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I, uh, uh, just, yeah, it was good to have you unpack that a little more. Uh, so, you know, uh, the book is called Paul the Progressive, uh, and I'm reading upside down. The, the Compassionate Christian's Guide to Reclaiming the Apostle as an Ally, and I'm pretty sure you can find that at most places you buy books. Uh, and uh, it's through Chalice Press for those of you that may be looking. Uh, and we encourage you to pick up a book, uh, maybe a couple friends, and pick, you know, have a good conversation about it, and uh, sit around the table and, and, and share that. And so, 
uh, for the do you have anything else you'd like to add before we uh, close out here so if, if your um, book group wants to do the, the study you know study school class or something like that I've been doing this thing where if 10 people buy the book I will Skype in and have a conversation with the class okay. about it too that's, awesome. that's really cool that is really cool uh, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, Eric does really great uh, via video. That's something I, something you do really, really well. Uh, <laughs> We've done a lot of video together. Yes, we have. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I encourage you to do that. Get your group together, buy ten books, uh, have them come in. I think you'll be pleasantly uh, pleased with the outcome and conversation that you have. So, so for the Bearded Theologians, uh, I'm Matt Franks. I'm Zach Bechtold. Thanks for checking us out. Thank you for listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share on all social media outlets. You can check out old episodes and more information at beardedtheologians.com. Thanks for checking us out.